Good afternoon, welcome to our afternoon service. Uh, we will open just by reading just a few verses from that lovely psalm well known to all of us, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me with a willing spirit then i will treat transgressors your ways then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you deliver me from blood guiltiness o god o god of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness O lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for your will for you will not delight in sacrifice or i would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then balls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless this reading of his holy and inerrant word. Uh, this afternoon we're going to look at the Gospel of John. We're going to start a series on John's Gospel in our afternoon service. The series we called That You May Believe, which isn't new, as many of you will be familiar that that is the purpose, that is John's purpose of writing his Gospel. In John 20 and verse 31, he writes, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We begin this afternoon with what is often called the prologue. That's John 1, 1 to 18. But before we read God's holy word, let us pray together. Let us take a moment and come before the throne of grace. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. So if you turn with me to John's Gospel in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at, his, at the Father's side. He has made him known, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Have you ever noticed how the Gospels begin? Of course you have. Matthew and Luke begin in the way we might expect with the story of the birth of Jesus, of Bethlehem, the stable, the angels, the shepherds, the manger, the wise men, and all of that. Mark is always in a hurry, so Mark doesn't spend time there. Mark goes straight to the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan with John the Baptist. The three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, is sometimes what we call the, the synoptic Gospels. But Matthew, Mark and Luke, all of them begin, as it were, with Jesus down here, down below, on earth, in ministry, in flesh and blood. But John begins with an altogether different way. John does not bring Jesus in quietly and then halfway through the story just tells you, no, Jesus is the Son of God. Now John tells you who Jesus is right up front. He does not begin, as it were, down below. He begins from above. His eyes are turned to heaven. And as John begins to tell the story of Jesus, he begins with some of the most sublime words that have ever been written in all of literature. It is attributed to one of the earliest Christians, John Christendom, that the Gospel of John is like a magic pool that an infant can paddle in and an elephant can swim in. Isn't that not beautiful? The metaphor, you know, the metaphor may be a little clumsy, but you understand exactly what he is saying. There are truths in these opening verses that a little child can understand. A little child can learn. A little child can recite. 
but there are deep, profound truths here that baffle the most erudite and recondite of minds. A child may paddle here, but an elephant may swim here. Now just allow me to linger on this train of thought, just for a moment. Imagine just for a moment that the four Gospels are great pieces of classical music. We might say that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke begun, begins, begin with themes that have the air of a lullaby. They recount the nativity, the incarnation, the birth, the infancy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark's Gospel, on the other hand, begins with a fanfare. The heralding of the ministry of John the Baptist announcing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's Gospel. John's Gospel, however, the fourth Gospel, begins not with a lullaby, nor the stride of the trumpet blasts of a herald. It begins, rather, with the soaring choir, with the soaring choral anthem. It begins at the pinnacle of doxology. It doesn't tell us about the birth of Christ, neither does it tell us a lot about John the Baptist's ministry. No, John plunges into the ocean of mystery and profound truth, talking to us about the unity of the triune God and the two natures, divine and human, that subsist in the single person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these opening verses, John introduces us to the centrepiece of the whole gospel. These verses are often re referred to as the prologue. John's Gospel can be divided more or less into two parts. The, John's, the first 12 chapters introduce us to the signs that the Lord Jesus gives of his real identity, the miracles that Jesus performs. And John will actually say, will add from time to time, that this is the first of the signs, this is the second of the signs, many signs, and so on. Which is why the first half, the first 12 chapters of John, is often referred to as the book of signs. And then from chapter 14 to the end of John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus withdraws from the world and focuses his ministry on his disciples and discloses to them some of the most profound mysteries of his being in person and in mission. The discourse in the upper room in John 14, 15 and 16. The high priestly prayer, John 17, sacred ground. All of that is before us in John's Gospel. And therefore in those chapters Jesus is revealing something of his inherent glory. So the second half of the book of John, chapter 14 onwards, is sometimes well referred to as the book of glory. So the book of signs, the first 12 chapters, book, and chapter 14 to the end of the book, the book of glory, the book of signs, the book of 
glory. But the verses here are the prologue to the two halves of the Gospel of John. And what we have in the prologue is a little bit like an overture to an opera, where some of the major themes of the opera are played in just small little snippets. So the reference is here in the prologue to light, life, glory, and all, as it were, are things and issues and aspects, perspectives that John is going to enlarge upon as he writes his gospel. He wants us to see, for example, in verse 16, that from the fullness of the grace of Jesus Christ, we have received one blessing after another. And how we have received it, as he tells us in verse 12, by believing on the name of Jesus Christ. That is why he wrote his gospel. That is why he focuses on the Lord Jesus in order that we may believe. So the first point I want us to get from the prologue is that Jesus existed before the beginning of creation. Jesus existed before the beginning of creation. Now there are three stages of the glory of Jesus Christ that unfold in the course of this prologue. The first of these stages have to do with the origin of Jesus, the opening two verses, wonderful verses. In fact, just look at the opening three words, three words in English, two in the original, just look at those lovely opening words in the beginning. And those of you who have your ears attuned know exactly what John is doing. Because John begins his gospel with the words in the beginning that you've already picked up. That is how the Bible begins. That is how the book of Genesis begins. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You see what John is doing? John is going back so much further than any of the other Gospels. Matthew goes back to Abraham in chapter 1. But that's not back far enough. And John is saying if you really want to know who Jesus is, if you really want to understand who Jesus is, if you really want to grasp something of the glory of Jesus Christ. You have to go back to the very beginning. You have to go back to creation, go back to the moment when matter was formed, when particles came together and atoms and molecules and neutrons and all of those subatomic particles and forces came into existence by the creative word of God. That is where you have to start. And what John is saying is this, that at the moment when creation came into being, the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, already was. He already had existence. And if Jesus was there at the beginning, then Jesus is not part of creation. He is uncreated. He isn't part of the world. He's not part of the universe He's not part of the solar system. He's not part of this great universe in which you and I live. Because at the very moment when creation was brought into being, he already had been, he already was, he already existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Now that's very easy and wonderful to say, but it is one of the most profound sentences ever written. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well see, either he was God, or else he was with God. And if he was with God, then he was not God. And if he was God, he was not with God. Do you see the problem? How can one be God and be with God at the same time? And in order to get out of that conundrum and problem, some have resorted to a different translation amongst them, of course, being the Jehovah's Witnesses in the New World translation. And of course, they resort to a translation that the word was with God and the word was a God, little g. Not the God, but a God, some smaller, more insignificant demigod amongst the pantheon of gods. Now, does that sound wonderful or not? The problem with it is it isn't true. And it isn't what John says. It's neither grammatically or contextually compatible with what John writes. John did not say that Jesus was a God, some minor deity. John says Jesus was God. The only God there is, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you've heard of that little expression, not an iota of difference. You heard it said, it doesn't make an iota of difference. An iota is, of course, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, equivalent more or less to the English I. And in the 4th and 5th centuries, there were little children reciting a little chorus that they had been taught. And in that chorus in the streets, the little children would be heard saying things like, there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun did not have existence. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. And part of the controversy that ensued between Arius and his counterpart Athenaeus was over one little Greek letter. And whether that letter was included made a difference between the two words. The only difference was I, iota. And someone saying it doesn't make an iota of difference. But Athenaeus, against the whole world, said that little letter made all the difference in the world. So why did I just say that? What is all the fuss about? I care all of my life's worth on that little iota. Because for this reason, dear friend, if Jesus is not God, then I am still in my sin. If Jesus is not the true God, the very God, the same substance as the Father, then I am still in my sins. Jesus is God. John says that. And here is another error. He is not the only one who is God. Now I'm using my very language very carefully here. We're on the precipice. He is God, but he is not the only one who is that one God. He is God, but at the same time he is with God, face to face with God, literally towards God, 
moving in fellowship and harmony with God. There is one God, but within the one true God there is plurality. There is one, and within that oneness there is more than one. There is God the Father, there is God the Son, and although the prologue prologue does not specifically mention it, there is God the Holy Spirit. And John wants us to understand that before the creation of the world, before any matter or particles came into existence, the Word of God, the Logos, already had been. And that Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was in fellowship and harmony with God the Father. And do you know why he's telling us that? Because as he goes on to say in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or as the NASB puts it, no one has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I love that. Do you want to know what God is like? Of course you do. And John is saying God is like Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has been enjoying the closest possible fellowship with the Father for all eternity. And has come into this world to show us what the Father is essentially like. Is that not the most beautiful thought that you can ever have? That here is the Father and here is the Son. And they are one God in fellowship with each other, in the mystery of the communion of the Trinity. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to make something of that mystery known to us. Is that not the most extraordinary thing you've ever heard? So that when you enter into fellowship with Jesus Christ, you're experiencing something of the intimacy and the fellowship that exists between the Father and the Son. And that is one of the most beautiful things that you could ever think about. Secondly, look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is the creator. Two things he tells us in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is saying at least two things, that Jesus created everything, and that he is the one who sustains everything that is, that is, that is it. It's so simple to say that Jesus made everything and sustains everything. Creation and providence are in the hands of Jesus Christ. He may be unrecognised by the world, but look again, he is God. Not only because he pre-existed with God from before creation, but also because of all the characteristics of the deity are expressed by him. He creates all things, he upholds all things. Now why is that important to John? Because one of the things that John wants to tell us about Jesus' great ministry is that he recreates. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus this afternoon, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
What has taken place in the heart and the soul of a believer in Jesus Christ is the act of recreation. Now I think that is why John is referring so much to creation in the opening chapter. There is that wonderful climax at the end of John 20 when Jesus comes in his resurrected body and he does something most extraordinary. He comes and breathes on his disciples. It's sometimes mistakenly thought to be some kind of pronouncement of the coming day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will be given. I don't think that's what John is referring to. Why did John refer to that? None of the other gospel writers refer to it. Because just as John has been reading the first chapter of Genesis as he wrote his words, the prologue, John has been reading the second chapter of Genesis as he wrote the prologue. And if you remember what is in the second chapter of Genesis, how God created out of the dust of the ground a human being and breathed life into that which he had created. It may well be that when John refers to Jesus as the creator and sustainer of all things, that he want, what he wants us to focus on, what he wants to allude to in particular, is that this Jesus is the one who is coming, not only to save individuals like you and me, that we might believe in him, but he's coming to form a new creation. He is beginning a new creation. Thirdly, the Son of God took on human flesh and form in all its weakness. The incarnation. Because the glory of Jesus Christ is seen not only in the origin of Christ, not only in his creation, but in his incarnation. Look at the text in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In verse 10, he was in the world and especially verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. Now flesh, my friends, is the Bible, biblical word for humanity in its weakness, in its frailty. So what John is saying is that when Jesus Christ was born, when Jesus Christ became incarnate, when the only true God took on to himself, in addition to his deity, humanity, he took humanity in its low condition. He didn't come to be born in a palace. He didn't come to be born with all the trappings of the world. He didn't come to hover above us. He came into the world. He made his dwelling among us. John says beautifully in verse 14, he tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. And what is the significance of that? What is the significance of the tabernacle? Because the tabernacle was the one place where holy God and sinful man might meet together. If you remember one of the names for the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tent of meeting. Because that is where the glory of God, the Shekinah glory cloud, shined in all of its magnificent magnificence. But it was a place where sinners could come into fellowship and communion with holy God. 
And John is saying that this Logos, this word who was with God and was God, made his dwelling among us. The tent of meeting. He took flesh and blood. He came into this world as a human being. He lived in our physical and social and spiritual environment. He shares our pain and frustration. If you see what John is saying, the word was made flesh. And John is saying what the author to the Hebrews wrote in 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows what it is like to be tired. He knows what it is like to be exhausted. He knows what it is like to be thirsty. He knows what it is like to stand before a tomb and weep. He knows what it was like to have his back lacerated and torn. He knows what it is like when rusty nails pierced his hands and his feet. He knows what it was like to have thorns pressed into his brow. He knows what it is like to be betrayed. He knows what it is like to be lonely. He knows what it is like to be single. You see what John says, it is a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ and who he is. And then you see the responses, verse 10, the world did not know him. Here is Jesus in his magnificent magnificence and glory and splendour. Men and women rejected him. But look at the other response in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you in darkness? Jesus is the light that pervades the darkness. Is your soul empty? Is there a God-shaped void in your soul, then Jesus, the Word of God, is the one who can fill that emptiness. And you ask, how? By believing in his name. By believing, by trusting. Who is he born in the stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him. Lord of all. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, in the very final book, The Last Battle, Tyrion and Lord Diggory are looking into the stable. And there is that astonishing statement that the inside of the stable was bigger than the outside. In our world too, Tolkien writes, a stable once had something in it bigger than the whole world. In our well too, a stable once had something in it that was bigger than the whole world. Do you know what this prologue is meant to do? It is not meant to bring comprehension, but it's meant to bring a little wonder, a little awe, a little reverence, a sense, a sight, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. Crown him, crown him, crown him.
crown him Lord of all. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Let's just read those words at the end of John's Gospel. John 20 and 30, verse 30, as we close. Now John did many signs in the presence of his, the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen.